This is a Solitaire Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. The feedback for the first episode has been very positive, ranging from I have a great voice for radio, does this mean I also have a great face for radio? To the notion that it's actually great that a blow in is hosting and producing the content for this show. People have reminded me that, hopefully without too much embarrassment, I can ask the most obvious questions. And they might forgive me for that, but also be maybe thankful that I did ask those questions. I'm starting at a point where the worst question would be, why didn't I ask that? Also, a few people have told me that they are excited because I'm going to unpeel the city and they can come with me in this journey. Already I'm being told that I should visit such and such a place and talk with such and such a person. I have a great list now. And then we have St. Patrick's Day this Friday. I'm going to be busy. Just very quickly, I will say that even though I feel still I don't know this city too well as an adult, I've been coming here since I was an infant. My dairy family married into a Galway family. And every season, it felt as though I had a family member on the N17, either them heading north or at least one of us heading south. Since my arrival as a full-time resident last September, I've plugged myself into the traditional music scene. I was playing a session in Tafts yesterday, Sunday, when I was told the very sad news of the untimely passing of James Sheridan. James had been playing music in the Tafts for the last 25 years. He had a regular slot on Sunday evenings. And as a mark of respect, there was no music there last night after our session. But I have been told that heaven was rocking at about that time. Now I'm not sure I've ever met James, perhaps I have and I can't recall. I'm sure that given the size of Galway, our paths may well have crossed at some stage. As a family member says, Galway is big enough and small enough. The musicians of Galway feels like a big family. So when one of us is affected, it feels as if we're all affected. And the mood in Taft's yesterday was obviously subdued, particularly since James was scheduled to play there last night. I just had the second anniversary of my own mother's passing five days ago, so I know the great pain that one endures when a loved one leaves us. Therefore, it is with great respect I would like to dedicate this episode to James Sheridan. My thoughts and prayers are with his beloved wife Deborah and his children Jack, Jordan, Jasmine and Aisha. This is episode two but it's really the first proper one where I get to pick the mind of a professional Galwegian. And that mind belongs to Jim Higgins, or Jim O'Higgins, as he prefers to be called. Jim works for Galway City Council and is Ireland's first heritage officer, having served in the role since 1999, a role in which Michael D. Higgins had a role in him getting. Talking with Jim is like diving into an encyclopedic lagoon. His knowledge and his passion for history in Galway is just vast and evident for any listener. When I was pondering the content for this podcast, the obvious choice for the first episode was a historical overview to answer this question. How has Galway come to be the city that it is today? I talked with Jim a couple of times over the phone and then briefly in person before he hit the record button. And each time I mentioned that I wanted to address this question, he just shrugged as cool as you like. I was thinking, do you not want to write that down? Or, do you not want to prepare some notes? He arrived in Solitaire Media Studios without any notes. The only prep work he did was to drink some Earl Grey tea and munch on a couple of orange-flavoured Cadbury fingers. As I said, as cool as you like. So, without any further ado, I bring you Jim O'Higgins. This is the Galway Podcast. Jim Higgins, hello. Hello, how are you? 
Very good. <laughs> uh, so, Jim, just to give me a bit of an introduction, who you are, yeah. what you do, and how you got there. Well, I'm an archaeologist originally. Uh, my name is Jim Higgins. I prefer Joe, Jim O'Higgins, but I should have changed it an awful lot earlier. So, uh, Jim Higgins is my slave name, you could you could say. <laughs> anyway, Jim O'Higgins is what I prefer to be known by. I have been an archaeologist for years, up until about 1999, and then I became the first heritage officer in the country. So I'm the Galway City Heritage Officer, and I also work as the Conservation Officer for the local authority, Galway City Council. So that's what I do. It's very wide, very, very vast. It includes everything from built heritage to culture to music uh, folklore, place names, uh, grants for protected structures, dealing with uh, planning applications, making comments on the heritage value or otherwise, and basically trying to ensure that heritage is, is, is taken cognizance of and that uh, heritage is promoted in the city. That's what I do. And what would you say are the biggest challenges of your job and the biggest benefits? Challenges, um, architects and developers. <laughs> um, or people who don't appreciate what is intrinsically Galwegian and take cognizance of the culture. Um, a lot of the time, really, it's a matter of trying to say to people, trying to persuade people, look, there's legislation here, let's try and do it the proper way. And there's also a matter of taste, and there's a matter of how it fits in, and how the general public are going to react with what you want to build. So there's a lot of that involved. Persuasion, really. Um, Of course, I'm not the only one who has the choice in the matter. The planners, obviously, they will have the ultimate say in an awful lot of things, but at least... As heritage officer, they will ask my advice, I'll give my advice, and I'll hope then that a balance can be struck that allows the heritage to uh, thrive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what what would you say are the biggest benefits of your job? The fact that I enjoy it so much. You know, people often say that uh, you don't work a day if you're doing something that you like. And uh, now I... I wouldn't say that that's quite the case all the time, but I really do love what I'm at. My background in archaeology gives me an interest in not just archaeology itself, but also in history and the environment and the built environment and how people react in it. The interest is there constantly. There is so much to be interested in, you know, Um, how people live in an area, how they react with the place that they live in, um, what meaning the past has for them. All of those things come into it. Um, I try to promote an interest in the past, but you're also trying to promote an interest in some sort of um, um, ensuring that the heritage continues to be an important part, you know. 
you don't try to say, oh, you know, the past is the most important thing. People live in the present. And what you want to do is you want to ensure that in living in the present, that every aspect of heritage is, is, is promoted. So heritage isn't just history. It's, it's, it's built heritage. There's cultural heritage. Uh, there's the environment. If you look at the Heritage Act, actually, it's, it's, it's a good way of approaching it because it includes archaeology, it includes landscapes, seascapes, flora, it includes the natural, the built, and the cultural heritage. It also includes things that are very difficult to define, maybe things like uh, language, accents. Those are all parts of, of, of heritage as well. Um, how the way people speak has evolved. Um, and it's not just one heritage, it's everybody's heritage. So we have a multicultural society in Galway now. And we're interested in promoting the heritage of people who came 10 years ago, as well as the people who came here maybe 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all part of the mix, you know. I think if we understand each other through heritage as well, that people will get on better. And um, I think an interest in heritage it's it's almost it gives you an interest in humanity and uh, and in people. And you're the first heritage officer of Ireland, is that correct? And the first heritage officer uh, appointed in summer 1999. I was one of the the three guinea pigs that I was the first to be appointed. Michael D Higgins had an awful lot to do with it and uh, promoted the idea that a local authority would employ a heritage officer. And the Heritage Council ran with that idea, and the Heritage Council then decided, well, we'll have a pilot scheme. So there was a person appointed in County Kerry for the entire county, a person appointed in County Sligo for the county of Sligo. And I was the only heritage officer then where it was decided that we'll just focus on the city. So I was the heritage officer appointed for Galway City. At a later date then, um, a colleague of mine, Marie Mannion, became a heritage officer for the county of Galway. But that's the way it was set up. We were the pilot scheme and we were there for three or four years. And uh, the way the local authority works, you, you have to be appointed or interviewed for your job after, after a certain amount of time. And I'm glad to say then that uh, the pilot scheme was deemed a success and... It's a measure of that success that every local authority in, in the Republic now has a heritage officer. And we come from different backgrounds. Some of us were archaeologists, geologists, reps planners, planners, architects, all of these professions, you know. Uh, people involved in ecology have become heritage officers. And over the years, the, they're now, you know, 28, 29 on average at a given time there's a heritage officer for every place but um, people retire people move on and so on but I think it has given great consistency to the whole idea of promoting heritage. Initially the Heritage Council um, in order to encourage the local authorities they decided well 
we'll pay a, a third of their wages for the first year and half for a certain percentage of time and so on. And that and that was an incentive, really, for the local authorities to um, employ us. And uh, luckily, that's what they did. In 2007, then, there was an idea just before the, the crash that there would be cross-border heritage officers and um, that the Heritage Council, uh, along with the Department of the Environment up north, would promote uh, heritage on an all-island basis. They haven't appointed heritage officers of the same type as there are down here. But, you know, I think that will eventually happen. Um, and uh, I think it will be a good thing. They've got a few other issues to deal with first up there, I believe. Ah, sure, they'll. Everything will come around in its own way. <laughs> That's right, in due course. Um, we're going to get on to how Galway became Galway in a second, but before that, mm. I just want you to cast your mind back, and this is more for parents who've got children. I want you to tell me, at what point did you recognise that this is a place where you're naturally headed towards, and if parents can recognise that in their own children and how they can encourage that? Well, I was always interested in history, and I was interested in, say, for instance, what my grandfather did and what my grandmother did and how they were involved in the War of Independence and so on. I was always interested in going out and visiting sites. My father was great. Uh, my mother always encouraged me. My father brought me to places. And he brought my brother, my brother and my sisters to places as well, all over the country. And I think he'd... Uh, he had an interest in, in the past. Um, he wasn't a, a historian or anything like that, but he liked to go to these places. I remember him bringing me to the Boyne Valley and to Tara and all that. And then in school, uh, there were one or two teachers who were, were encouraging and, um, as well. Um, so I always had an interest. And I remember many years ago, um, my aunt phoned my, my father and he, and she said, um, she said, uh, Paddy, um, Jim is inside in the backyard there down at the back of um, High Street or whatever, you know. And uh, my father more or less said, I should ask Grant, should we come home when he's ready? <laughs> so I got an intimate knowledge of Galway from wandering around. I wasn't afraid to ask to go in to see a place if I wanted to see a place. And uh, as a result of that, then I got an interest in every aspect of medieval Galway, the old shop fronts. I was a member of Antashka, I was a member of the Old Galway Society, the Galway Archaeological and Historical Society, uh, various environmental groups. And uh, that all added to the interest, really, you know. Um, before I w went to college at all, um, I just wanted to get out and go to college. I didn't like secondary school, didn't suit me. But I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. At one stage, a neighbour of ours said to my mother, what's Jim going to do in college? And she said, well, he's going to do history and classical civilization, and Irish and archaeology. And um, the neighbour said... Um, 
Oh my God, the four most unemployable subjects you could possibly do. <laughs> my mother gave her a nice smile and she said, but at least he's happy. Yes. And I suppose uh, I was lucky with my parents in the sense that they knew that I knew what I wanted to do and they knew I'd be all right doing it. And even if there weren't many jobs in archaeology, for instance, that I'd find a way of, of, of pursuing a career uh, that, would, that would suit me. I remember uh, the old career guidance teacher at one stage, he gave me these blue leaflets, you know, there were all these from the Department of Education or somewhere. There was a blue leaflet on the profession of archaeologist, and it said there were very few jobs in Ireland for archaeologists, a couple in the National Museum and a couple in the National Monument Service. And it was almost as if there was a dot, dot, dot at the end of the, of the pamphlet because, uh, you know, if you want to go ahead, well, <laughs> good luck with that. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, that's what I wanted to do. I enjoyed every second I spent in, in university. Um, some would say I spent too long there, but... Um, I don't think uh, I don't think education and the enjoyment of education will ever go amiss. So I left Ireland in 1996, and um, I've got a great ignorance mm. of Ireland, uh, and that's not through um, something I've wanted to happen, but it's just happened that way. Um, mm. But I know more about British politics because it's uh, something mm. you know. Growing up in the North, you sort of you're more connected because of the impact yeah. of the. So I do know that a lot of the politicians, the top politicians, have gone down your educational route. Yeah, and um, is that similar that's happened in Ireland? It is, I think. Yeah, um, even my grandparents uh, would always have emphasized that too. Say my parents' generation. And there's an awful lot of my parents' generation who wouldn't have been able to afford to go to college. I would have loved to go to college. But they always had a love of reading. And even if they had to leave work or, or leave education early and go, go, go and, and, and uh, get into whatever job was available, there was always a love of reading in the, uh, in, in the area, I think, you know. And... Um, I think an awful lot of people, before the free education came in, an awful lot of people who would have been fantastic in, in university and would have, would, have been, would have made great teachers, they, they weren't able to do what they wanted to do or to get into education or to go to college because they simply didn't have the money. I think bringing in the free education in the 60s and all that, and the, uh, I think that was a major step forward for Ireland. And provided a group of people who, when they emigrated, they had something they had in, had an education, you know, or they had the basics of an education. And uh, I think even today, you know, people always say about the Irish workforce, you know, that it's one of our great resources. And that's because people choose to be educated. And I think it's even better now in that people can... They might go to college for a while, they might do a job that doesn't suit them, but they can always come back to education, to further education, night courses. Um, 
at one stage I was teaching archaeology to tonight students and the fantastic uh, range of people who worked who worked in a huge range of jobs but they got an interest in archaeology and the social aspect of it you know the way they came on the trips and they enjoyed seeing the country that's what it gave to them it gave them um the social aspect of it it gave them the archaeology but it also brought them around the country mm-hmm. and uh, get to see places meet people and so on um it can never be underestimated the, the the power of education i think it's fantastic <laughs> Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be, all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is the Galway Podcast. So Jim, I'm going to get into the meat of the conversation now, which is how did Galway come to be Galway that it is today? Yeah. I know you said just before the mics were turned on, Mm. um, how far back do you want to go? And it's it's really up to you. So let's, uh, let's, let's see where we end up. Okay. Well, archaeologically or geologically even in terms of that. About 12,000 years ago, the ice began to melt, and uh, about 9,000 years ago, uh, Mesolithic people came here in the Middle Stone Age. And right down to uh, the end of prehistory, which was probably the Iron Age or the early Christian period, what we often call early historic period, there's evidence for people in Galway, working and living in Galway. We have the tombs, we have the sites. Discoveries would be constantly made, you know. Um, for instance, people often talk about uh, the castle at Galway that was built by the Anglo-Normans in the 13th century. And that has been partly excavated. And even more recently, there was a, uh, the excavation on a site on the corner of Key Lane and Key Street. And there, the earlier castle of Galway that was built by the O'Connor Kings, the O'Flaherty's, uh, their, their um, representatives in Galway, you could say. Uh, that was discovered. And um, it was radiocarbon dated. Frank Coyne did the excavation. So these discoveries have been made constantly, uh, whether they're prehistoric or medieval discoveries. Galway, for an awful long time, you could, you could say from the Anglo-Norman period, from, say, the 13th century right down to the 14th century, became a, a colony. It was a walled town. The Irish were excluded from it. The Irish began to creep 
back in, in a way, um, in late medieval times, in the 15th and 16th century, because the people in the town have to, had to have the middlemen to provide the goods that were trading on the continent, you know, the skins, the, the wood, the natural resources that were being traded um, on the continent for things like wine and uh, metal and, and so on. Who built the walls? The walls were built by the, the Anglo-Normans came in with the De Burgos. Gradually that became an English population or a population that was coming over from England. Um, they were loyal to the crown. Uh, from about the... Um, there was always... There had been the O'Connor Castle there in the 12th century. That was taken over by the De Burgos in the 13th century. And then by the 1170s, and between the 1170s and the 1280s, the fortifications increased. And that was basically the descendants of the Anglo-Norman settlers who encircled the town with walls. The Irish castle that had been there in the 12th century, built by the O'Connors, was probably very different. It didn't have a town wall around it. Once the town was walled, then you could get things like... Um, you could impose taxes and you could get murage grants so the king would allow you to raise money by imposing taxes and the money that they was earned from those taxes allowed you to fortify the walls and enclose them and uh, defend the town against the outsiders. Sorry, the outsiders the being... The outsiders being the Irish at the okay. time, yeah. Was there a battle in which uh, these guys were able to take over Galway? And when did that happen? Yeah, in the 13th century, when the De Burgos came, there were several battles. First, they took over the uh, uh, O'Connor, um, bon, Dún Bundagáliva, uh, which was the the existing Irish fort. The Irish took it back. There were various battles, and eventually, anyway, um, Irish power declined as Anglo-Normans took over. And uh, won out, in, um, and then eventually enclosed the entire area of the the circuit of the town with walls. There was a certain amount of warfare, in by comparison to what you would term warfare now, these were probably raids. You know, um, the in the fourteenth century there were the Bruce invasions of Ireland, there was the Black Death, there were all of these things. The population decreased all over Europe as a result of the Black Death. And in some instances, the Gaelic Irish began to reclaim areas because the towns, uh, the colonies with big populations were places where the Black Death would have wiped out a huge number of the population. So that was in the 14th century. The 15th and 16th century, it was the main period when the town began to prosper again. The merchant families began to um, build townhouses. They continued to refortify 
the town to continue to, to trade. A lot of these families would have come with the Anglo-Normans, but some of them would have only come a little bit later, and they became known as the tribes of Galway. Now, the tribes of Galway was a derogatory term used by the Cromwellians because they felt that although these people were the descendants of the colonists, they had become so much like the Gaelic Irish that they didn't have the same relationship with the, with the colony. So then you had the wars of the 16th and 17th centuries, um, and those wars were mainly, um, there were the Tudor conquests, really, and, uh, and taking of a lot of land uh, from the Native Irish. Um, Tudor wars, the wars of Elizabeth I and so on. And then in the 17th century, you had the English Civil War, the wars between the Cromwellians and the Royalists, and of course Ireland was embroiled in that. And it really became not just an English Civil War or an Irish and English War, it became a, a war that involved the entire continent. Religion was mixed up in it. And um, eventually you would say really that the final conquest of Ireland uh, occurred at that, the end of that period, at the end of the 17th century. So you had the Cromwellian Wars in the 1650s. You had the Williamite Wars in the 1690s. And more or less after that, really, it was a series of rebellions uh, to try and undo the conquests that had taken place in the 17th century. By the end of the 17th century, and as a result of the, the various wars in Galway, uh, the town was in bad state. It fell into, the, into decline, really, in the 18th century. In the 19th century, there were attempts to revive it. And one of the ways in which industry came back into Galway was they tried to develop Galway as an international port. They tried to develop the canals. There were a huge number of industries on the canals, things like distilling, for instance. You had stone quarrying, and you had a lot of um, attempts to develop a transatlantic trade. In the 19th century, you had an awful lot of Victorian-style mills, you had the Palmer's Mills, you had, say, industrial sites, places where um, distilling took place, the purses, for instance, factories involved in um, shipbuilding, for instance, up along the canal. Despite all that, the population of the town really declined, and there was an awful lot of emigration. The famine really uh, hit Galway pretty hard, and you had an awful lot of emigration from Galway. An awful lot of the core of the city became fairly decrepit. So you had the old uh, late medieval houses of the, the tribal families, the traders, the merchants and whatever. And instead of being wiped out and taken down and a big Georgian phase, 
been brought in like you had in Limerick and in Cork. What happened in Galway was there wasn't the money there for a big Georgian phase. So an awful lot of the medieval buildings became reused, they became tenements. So you still have in the city an awful lot of buildings where the core of the building, it could be 16th and 17th century. Ostensibly on the outside it looks like a 19th century building. And that was because in the 19th century they just reused the late medieval buildings. Um, they broke out windows for plate glass through them and so on. And they rendered over all the all all the mess they had made of the facade, and uh, for that reason we have a certain number of late medieval. The core of the buildings are late medieval, and we have a certain number of fragments. Can you name some of those buildings? The best example really would be in Kerwin's Lane, and all of those buildings there. They're essentially uh, late medieval buildings that were continued to be used and reused in the 19th century, you know. You have Garavan's pub, you know. You look at it and you see a big plate glass window and you see all these uh, typical 19th century um, sash windows and so on. But when you look carefully at the facade and when you see where the render has been taken off in places, you'll see that those big sash windows, those are the ultimate destroyers of your typical late Gothic medieval window in Galway. Once the sash windows became popular, they started to break through the fabric and they really didn't give a damn whether they were breaking through carved stone or whatever. The owners of the buildings wanted modern sash windows in the same way as in the 1970s we wanted PVC windows, you know. And then the other thing that happened was uh, buildings became shops. So you want a big plate glass windows and so what happened was the facade the ground floor was hoped out often it was a medieval building and there was a thick thick wall but they broke through it put in maybe things like cast iron pilasters and so on wooden beams and put in your big plate glass window and what what year is this happening really from about the 18, 1880s and 1890s on you know that's whenever charlie chaplin was born that's right. Yeah. And Hitler. The, <laughs> that's right. The other thing that, that you had was the, um, apart from the canals, the Eglinton Canal, for instance, an attempt to link up Galway Bay right up into the Corrib and from the Corrib then into, into, into Loch Mask. There's that failed canal between the, the Corrib and the Mask that um, became unviable. But that was the aim, ultimately, that, that you would be able to go into Galway Bay and you would be able to sail up all the way right up through the Galway River into the River Corrib, from the River Corrib then into Loch Corrib. And then you would be able to go then from there to Loch Mask. And uh, that was the aim from around the early 19th century down to the mid-19th century. It was hoped then as well, I suppose, at the time, uh, with the coming of the railways, the Galway Clifton Railway, for instance, and um, attempts to um, improve industry and uh, provide the transport infrastructure 
Unfortunately, an awful lot of those railways, the hope that was generated by the railways in the 1880s and 1890s, in the 1930s, an awful lot of the smaller branch lines were just taken up. You had a, you had a branch line from Galway to Clifton that disappeared in the 1930s. You had a branch line going to the Ackle, Ackle Island, for instance, that was taken up as well. These, if they were ever restored, if they ever could be restored, would make the most scenic and beautiful rail journeys, some of the most scenic and beautiful rail journeys in the world. Is, is there any plans in the pipeline of that people taking that on? Well, an awful lot of the problem is with the the, the route of the railway from Galway to Clifton, for instance, you still have an awful lot of the old stations and the remnants of the buildings, and three or four of those have been bought up and restored as houses. But in some places where the railway lay, the road has been put on that area. Uh, the fields uh, where the railroad track ran, often that they've been sold off. Mm. So it would be a complicated... It would be a complicated process. You would have to get every, every, every farmer and every owner of a, of a field, whatever, to agree. And in some cases, uh, the route is no longer there. They've done great things up in places like Mulrani, where they have turned the railway routes, the old railway routes, into, into walking routes, mm. you know. And... Um, in Galway, for instance, the old station house in Clifton has become a hotel. And there's been several other of the railway houses, the, the stations, Balnahinch, for instance, that have been restored. So I'm derailing you, no pun intended. You're getting into the 20th century now with Galway, so mm. uh, if you want to go back there. Got into the 20th century and off that day. The core, the old core of the city was in ruins. You had some 19th century, you had just some 19th century warehouses, you had the workhouse, of course, uh, and you had the um, university. But I suppose the workhouse system was showing how the Victorian mind worked, in a sense. Um, there was no welfare system at the time. People who became impoverished ended up in the workhouse. And uh, the great Victorian contribution to heritage in many cases was a workhouse, a prison, and a cemetery, all located near adjacency to each other. You know, it was almost as if poverty was a crime, that if you didn't have employment, that you were considered to be a, a vagrant of some sort. And, and where was the... The workhouse. The workhouse was in Chantilly, which was a place that was taken over and demolished eventually. It's owned by the HSE now. But the great safety valve, I suppose, at the time was getting the means together to emigrate to America or to England or, or whatever. There is a, a folk tale that an aerial photograph that was taken of Galway in the 1920s or early 30s that People looked at it and they thought that the place had been bombed oh, God. <laughs> because of uh, the decrepitude that was there. 
Yeah. And that was just from lack of investment? It was from lack of investment and the fact that um, the core of the old town really was, 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 was rotting, you know. Uh, it was really only after independence that the that there was any attempt at all at slum clearance, and um, it was really a measure of the changes that took place under the local government legislation that you had the the establishment of urban district councils and rural district councils, and the political climate changed as well. So instead of the local rule being mainly in the hands of the landlord class, what happened was that that local government legislation widened the franchise. And uh, whether it was in urban areas or rural areas, political changes were happening. So uh, the landlord class in many areas would have been unionist or loyalist. You had the land, they had the land war, for instance. Large number of big estates, big houses, were burnt in the west of Ireland. You had the attempts at uh, reforming the land system, the foundation of the land league, and in tandem with that, then you had all the political changes, um, support from for the Home Rule Party began to decline as support for complete independence began to increase. And that was reflected then in the uh, in the makeup of the councillors in the local local government. But really up until after independence there was no attempt to do anything about slum clearance. In the nineteen thirties and all and also the area in St. Augustine Street and Middle Street that had become derelict enough that those people would have been moved into houses in places like Bohemore, for instance. The Clada, which was a settlement of several hundred thatched houses, that was eventually demolished. Now, it would be wonderful to have it today. It would, it would look absolutely spectacular. But the Urban District Council at the time, the attitude was... We want to clear these slums. You know. Modernise. Modernise. Uh, some of the people in the Clada who lived in those houses were opposed to this. Others were in favour. And uh, you had um, the development of good quality uh, um, concrete houses in, in the Clada. But it's really only, as I said, after independence that that sort of development took place. At the time, it was the local authorities that undertook to do that work. It, uh, there was very, very little attempt by uh, private individuals to do that. The only one that I can think of was Joe Young, for instance. He was uh, he had a bottling industry. He used to make mineral waters and he built houses for, say, the, the upper echelons of his management in in, in um, Air Street. But it really wasn't until the local authorities grasped the nettle of slum clearance that places like um, the Baltimore Houses and later on the 50s uh, houses in Merview were, would have been built. 
houses in Clad. Between the 30s, really, and the 50s. And you, as a heritage officer, looking back on that, what do you think would have been the best method to have redeveloped the city? I think you had to have slum clearance. You had to give some people. You had to give people some hope by giving them a place to live in that wasn't wretched and that had good facilities, good water system. All of that would have uh, contributed to the general health of the population. Um, new houses meant that people weren't suffering from the ill effects of bad sewage system. Um, horrific damp, tuberculosis, and all the diseases that were associated with. The land up in um, Marlin Park, Marlin uh, Park House, that was acquired by the government. And um, the main reason that it was acquired was to build a hospital that could deal with things like tuberculosis. Not that the woodland around it was was deemed to be, you know, important for people's health, for their mental health. Running water, the stream running through the woodland, the trees, all of that. You know, it was it was well known even at the time that these contributed not only to the to the medical, but uh, to, to the um, physical, but also to the mental health of, of people going into the hospital. I think the other thing that would have um, helped was that uh, certainly there was the, the, an attempt by the government, really, but not by not by private individuals to establish uh, industries. Say, for instance, the cotton factory, for instance, which is now on Sandy Road. Uh, they went to places all over Europe, uh, uh, and they got equipment, sometimes second-hand equipment. They brought it over. They got people from Germany, Czechoslovakia, all of these places to come over and set up industries. And uh, that allowed at least some of the population uh, to not have to emigrate, you know. How else could they have done it? Well, I don't know really, apart from um, the provision of jobs. Um, by about the 1960s and certainly into the 70s, the IDA and all these organisations were establishing industrial estates. And I suppose that's what helped to keep the population in, in the city as well. And from about the 70s, the town began to expand. New housing estates were built. Renmore, for instance. Old Merview was developed even further than the houses there from the 50s, the, the, the expansions of various schemes and so on. I think the only way that that could have been done really was through the local authorities getting involved. And I think that's what things should go back to, that the local authorities should build. And um, so that they developers really rebuild to the requirements that are needed really. It's amazing to listen to this because um, I've often said that I'm a great fan of history but history is mm. not a great fan of me <laughs> so I hear something and then 
two days later it's gone out of my brain it's, mm. I can't retain this so it's mm. a marvel and amazing to mm. to experience this uh, conversation so mm. yeah please carry on I think the late 70s and the 80s were very interesting for from several points of view though the Galway Archaeological and Historical Society had been established in 1900 but, and that always contributed towards an interest in preservation and so on. And Tashka was strong in the 70s and 80s, much stronger than it is now, had large numbers. Well, what was stronger? On Tashka, the uh, Old Galway Society was an offshoot of the um, Galway Archaeological and Historical Society that uh, was established in the 1960s. So there was beginning of an awareness of the importance of the history of the place. And that was given a bit of added impetus in the 1984, what what was called the Quincentennial Year. Some people say it was Quincentennial, and some people say it was Quincentenary. Anyway, historian T.P. O'Neill decided that, it was, well, it was popular at the time to say, oh, well, Athlone is 700 years old. Mayo is 5,000 years old or whatever. So they're celebrating 500 years. But in Galway, what they decided to do is start with the first charter, 1484. And they'll say, okay, what we're celebrating is from the time of the first charter, 1484, that was the time the corporation was established as well. So it was local government and the charter from the king. And the rights then that the charter gave to raise further money for the fortification and edification of the town. So they decided in 1980, that 1984 would be the year. And uh, the idea was that we celebrate the history of the place and the, and the heritage. At that time, I started a thing called the Galway City Heritage Survey. And it was done with money from... Antashka, a voluntary organisation interested in preservation and conservation and so on. And we got a couple of grants from the the banks and we carried out a survey of every building in the inner city. And then a lot of the buildings then became listed buildings and were put on the list by the corporation for preservation. So there was a list one and a list two, list A and a list B. Some were more important than others. So this was the basis for the listing of the historic structures. And a lot of them were adopted by the corporation, which later became the city council. And we became it became uh, part of the register of protected structures. Now, people often talk about listed buildings and they say, oh, my building is a listed building, I can't do anything with it or whatever. That's not true, you know. The whole point about a listed building is that you try to make it, you, you try to make grants available to, to ensure that it continues in use. The old listed building system was changed in 2000 under the Planning and Development Act. So what were listed buildings became protected structures. So I think that was important. And I think the fact that we 
did this Galway City Heritage Survey at the time, that provided the basis for a list which was then given to the corporation, which later became the county council, or city council, sorry. And uh, later it became the basis of the list of what we tried to preserve. But the quincentennial year and the celebration of the of 1984, it also provided a, an attempt to, to focus on what was important about our heritage, our past. Running more or less in parallel with that then as well, from about 1970s, 1977, 1976, you had a small arts festival being created. Ollie Jennings was selling tickets as a one-man band outside um, uh, outside one of the shops in Williams Gate Street there and um, Moon's shop as it was at the time so you had the development of the arts um, the arts festival you had the appointment of arts officers and it was only later then that you had the appointment of uh, myself as heritage officer but you always had uh, a population of students in Galway. You had the university, NUI Galway, as it became later on. Used to be when I started there, it was University College Galway. Then it became NUI Galway. And then in the seventies as well, you had the beginning of the uh, Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. Currently, Atlantic Technical University. Again, yeah, another change in the. So, you had a big student population. I think the student population was a big contributing factor in the success of things like arts festivals, uh, the beginning of the music scene, traditional musicians moving from elsewhere in the country into Galway, traditional music in pubs. I think all of that was important, you know, places like the Crane, places like Taft's Cheek Holy later, you know, uh, developing the music scene. So I think when people talk about Galway today, what they have to remember was that prior to the 70s and 80s, that sort of ambience that is in Galway now really wasn't there. There were an awful lot of ruined buildings, an awful lot of buildings that had gone out of use and so on. But there was a revival. Now, whether you call it an arts revival or a heritage revival or what, is yeah. unimportant. The point is really that the culture of Galway, the ambience, the, the bringing out of the, the, the best features of it, the promoting of Galway, the fact that it became a place where people wanted to come and enjoy the scenery, the music, the tradition, the association with the Irish language, and all that. All that became very important. I think we're adding to that and building on that uh, as well, I think. Organisations like Galia of Gwilga are very important, promoting the use of the Irish language. The fact that Galway became a bilingual city as well. 
I think is is is, is fantastic. So there are all these incentives for people to come to Galway. I think the presence in Galway of maybe 17, 18, 20,000 students, whatever it is now, the presence of international students from all, all over the world, the fact that countries will send their entire population of medical students to places like Galway, the international mix that's there. These have all contributed to making Galway what is really a special place, you know. And hopefully that trend will continue. We have allow an, an awful lot of new citizens come to Galway. People from every corner of the earth. And one of the great delights I take in, in you know, talking about heritage to, to schools and... Um, you know, to groups that want to do a tour of Galway is the fact that the new Galwegians are beginning to explore the nooks and crannies of Galway in the same way as I was exploring them in the 70s and 80s and began to think, you know, it's a great place, we're at home here. So um, it doesn't mean that there needs to be an awful lot more changes in Galway. But uh, I think I think it is a very pleasant uh, and wonderful place with a great heritage. The development of the museum from the 1970s. I mean, the museum was established in 1977. It's a great museum now. Um, it's become a designated museum, which means that it can house material that would normally be in the National Museum and stuff can be brought back from excavations that have taken place in Galway and be displayed in Galway. Uh, the arts festival is of international repute. But there's things we need as well. I mean, we, we need a school of music. Um, we need a, a public theatre. We need more sort of public realm Take places. We'd a library that is owned, not just rented, by the local authority. We need a new archive. Uh, we knew we need new art spaces and the continued development of them. We need to ensure that the public realm remains the public realm and that it doesn't become privatized. Uh, we need walking routes, places of leisure where people can work and play and enjoy at the same time. So Galway is, it, it's a very special place, but uh, there's no place that can't be improved by more heritage and by more culture, uh, by more places that are developed for public use and we need that approach as well when developers decide to build housing estates. We need public development in, in those housing estates. We need a cultural aspect to be written in to the planning process. 
We need traditional walls to be preserved, hedgerows to be preserved, streams to be left overground, not to be canalised or whatever in development. And we need a, an approach that takes in every aspect of the heritage so that the developer realises that it's not just the building that they're building, it's also a place where people can thrive, where people can feel healthy, where people can look at a little display or a, an exhibition in the new development and say, well, look, oh yeah, that was here before. Um, that's the approach that we need to take. We need to take the approach that heritage and culture should be embedded everywhere in society for the benefit of society. And uh, I think that's the way uh, that it should go. I love it. I love it. Thank you, um, Jim. I think we've naturally come to a conclusion almost here. There's, I have two questions. One mm. is, what are your, your, your favourite buildings in Galway? I think St Nicholas's Collegiate Church is one of my favourite buildings. And I did a project there in the 1990s. And we recorded all the gravestones. And uh, we also did a, a lot of conservation work around the, the church. But it's a very special place in the sense that it's an area where there's a little Sunday school there, there's music, there's choirs. Uh, people of all religions come in there. Uh, you know, over the years there, for instance, when the Augustinian church was being renovated, for instance, um, St. Nicholas's, which was a, a Church of Ireland church, uh, invited the, the people from the Augustinian church to make use of, of the church. I have various Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox churches have used bits of St. Nicholas's over the years. So you go in there and you think to yourself, this is fantastic, you know, you see this lovely uh, painted Greek um, series of panels with saints and so on. And you begin to think, well, this is an echo here because this is probably what St. Nicholas's would have looked like before the Reformation. An awful lot more colour, saints and so on. So that's one of my favourite buildings. Another one of my favourite buildings is um, probably Lynch's Castle. You know, it's a bank now, but uh, really, you know, eventually, wouldn't it be wonderful if the bank would allow it, allow it to be used as a, as a, as a civic space? It, I think it's a, it's a lovely space. Uh, beautiful sculpture on it. The highest point of what was called an Irish Lake Gothic, um, developed around 1500 there, and... Uh, some lovely sculpture, but even places like the uh, the small little fisheries tower on the on the river, looking out over the over the bay, I think that's fantastic. The irony of it was that it was built to try and prevent people from poaching, you know, and 
there was a family that owned the fishing rights to the river. But um, when you look out now over the bay, it, you, you can really appreciate how Galway has developed. Uh, the tower actually looks over, not the Carib, but it looks over the bay, Coon the and it looks over the river, Galliv. And it's only further up when you get as far as the, the bridge that the river becomes, the Carib. But even from that vantage point, you can, you can talk about the, the folklore of the area, how it has developed over thousands of years. You look out on the bay and the legend is the, uh, that Galway Bay was an awful lot smaller and that there was a vast explosion and that the bay was developed or, or it came about and the River Corrib then um, became Loch Orbison and that down right there at the edge of the Corrib on a place called the Crow's Rock that that's where a woman called Galiev was drowned. And the folklore is almost as, as interesting as the actual fact, because down at the end of Long Walk, right down at the mud dock, there was a rock there, and it's shown on the old pictorial map of Galway. And the tradition was that Galiev who was the daughter of the chieftain Brazil, who was also known as Mananan Maclir, the Celtic god of the sea, that his daughter drowned at that rock called the Crow's Rock. And a little depiction, little engraving of it, is shown on the pictorial map. Now, it's all folklore, but the folklore is just as interesting as the, as the history to some degree, because it shows... It shows the uh, the importance of the legends. Uh, the legends were a way of explaining your um, your environment, how your environment evolved, and how natural features evolved, and how places got their name, and so on and so forth. So Galiev may never have existed. She's put down as the daughter of Brazil or Mananan Maclear, but Galiev may be just a name that existed for the town, which meant the town of the foreigner. So we've had foreigners of all sorts coming and all leaving their impacts over the years. But that really adds to the mix. The other thing that you can see from the fisheries tower is you can see the Spanish arch. And the tradition about the Spanish arch is that it was built in 1584 as an extension to the town walls that were built in the 1270s. And that it was named after the fact that there was so much trade with Spain. But in fact, the name Spanish Arch didn't appear really until about the 18th century, when the area nearby was called Spanish Parade. So even looking out from that vantage point, you have the tradition, you have the folklore. You look a bit closer and you see the archaeology of that wonderful site that um, Frank Coyne excavated there on the corner of Key Lane and Key Street. You see the Spanish Arch and excavations have taken place there as well and um, we're awaiting dates from the, the core of the wall 
and that might tell an interesting story about whether the wall was really built in 1270 or 1280 or whether it was part of an earlier wall that existed already. Galway Bay, the Galway River, from the river then up into the Corrib, you had the Queen's Gap. The Queen's Gap was named the Queen's Gap because a certain percentage of the fish that were the eels and the salmon and trout that were fished went in revenue form to the Queen of England. Further up then you would have had uh, St. Stephen's Island where the Franciscans established themselves and they would have had rights as well, fishing rights and mills on the river. Galway at one stage was called Bolyna Shrahan, um, the town of the streams, because it really was a series of islands that the streams ran through. And uh, it was on these islands that the, the settlements took place. We're still finding out more and more about it. It's, uh, it's archaeology and uh, it's past. Great place, really. My final question to you. Hmm. Who were those teachers that inspired you? There was a guy called Dan Tahani. He used to run a stamp club. What's his name? Dan Tahani, and he used hmm. to run a stamp club in the. And uh, but he was always interested in history. Uh, and whenever we'd have a free class or a teacher didn't turn up or whatever, Dan would come in. He'd have a big collection of slides, and he took slides all over the world, Georgian buildings, Gothic cathedrals, God knows what. And, and were these slides that he had... That got, he had taken got, himself. It, it, from photographs he had taken himself. Oh, he had been in these places. Oh, he okay. had, you know, and he was a teacher at the yeah, Bish? at the Bish. Yeah. Okay. So he used to uh, put on a, a slideshow. Um, so I think really that would... It would give you a very varied interest in the past, and uh, that that would be really that uh, that interest uh, developed partly from there as well. You know, as I said, I always wanted to get out of school. <laughs> it's like um, um, I knew I wanted to be in college. I remember giving tours of the college to fellow first years I knew all where all the buildings were long before I actually went to college and I used to sit in at the back of uh, uh, history lectures uh, by Garage MacOm, various other people like that Garage MacNichol, great historians they hadn't a clue that I was still at school and that I was just dosing off to go to their lectures I remember meeting Michael Dagnan, who was the old professor of archaeology. And um, I was actually doing a rubbing of a carving at the back of the archaeology department. And he came over, he thought I was vandalizing the carving, whatever. About an hour and a half later, anyway, brought me up to his office, lent me books on Celtic art and so on and so forth. He said, come in here anytime you want and borrow the books. I was in... I was in I suppose it must have been in sixth year. So you were still in the bish at that point? I was still in the bish wow. at that time, you know. I hadn't seen him then for a while. Uh, I, you know, I, I, 
got to know him at that at that stage. But I mean, he um, what he hadn't realised is that I'd already been into his lectures, and I sat at the back of the class and snuck in because the lectures were in the old uh, Latin hall, and if you were careful enough, and if you just trod the boards carefully, you didn't make a creak as you were coming in, and you could sit there and. Nobody knew any better whether you were a first year or a second year or a third year or whatever it was, you know. Um, so I, I knew the university and uh, the lecture halls um, a long time before I ever left the Bish. And uh, it's a place I, I, I still love to go back to around the college, just walk around the grounds and, and so on, go into the library learn a lot about about Galway in there <laughs> wonderful well I should say Shima so Higgin Mila Mayagat oh tough fault you wrote but uh, I, I know it should be Jim O'Higgin but yeah. I, I'm, I'm going the full the full hog here. the full hog yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. Thank thanks you, very much thank you This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.